Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. So a month ago, Peter, I went to uh, an investment conference in London where I had a very good presentation by one of the leading analysts in the London market. And he said, you've never had it so good as you have at the moment. Stock markets is an all-time high or recently been close to an all-time high. Um, and the world seems to be recovering. Even in the UK, we seem to be coping with the prospect of Brexit. And then he said, it's not going to last. Uh, and sure enough, here we are a month later, and we've just seen one of the most uh, dramatic and precipitous declines in global stock markets that we've seen. And because of this virus, the COVID-19 virus, we're looking at uh, certainly a, a very sharp slowdown in economic, economic activity. You and I have lived through a lot of bear markets, but how does this one compare to others that we've lived through in the last, uh, well, four decades that we've been following these uh, financial markets? Jonathan, yes, thank you for asking me. And I would agree with everything you said about the situation of five, six weeks ago, except possibly when he said at your investment conference, this cannot last. Uh, the reason that it didn't last was not usually among the reasons evoked by bearish investors who got out of the market too early. In fact, what happened was a typical black swan. And in my opinion, the definition of a black swan is an unknown unknown, which comes unexpectedly from the least expected corner, and which very often, and particularly with this black swan, is not the fault of anybody who is participating in any way in financial markets. It's totally exogenous, came out of the blue, and is nobody's fault. What I would say, nonetheless, and indeed you and I, we've seen a lot of these situations over the past 45 years, I would still uh, say that this is not a bear market. Okay, this is so let's, if I just interrupt you there, Peter, just to say, okay, so you said it's not a bear market. You're now going to tell me um, why it's not a bear market. It may look like a bear market, and it might feel like a bear market, but it's not a bear market, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's not a bear market. Uh, maybe it's semantics, all this, but to me it's a market collapse. You don't have a drop in share prices and all the other things that have happened of that magnitude in a total time of 20 days or so. Uh, traditional bear markets, as you very well know, last uh, between somewhere between maybe six or nine months and 24 months or three years at the most, that kind of thing, number one. And number two, more importantly, bear markets result from rising interest rates and from rising inflationary expectations. And that is absolutely not the case today, because whatever the opinions of certain economists and certain central bankers, particularly economists, Today's real danger is a deflationary bust. And that's right. something you and I haven't seen. No, because the last time that really happened was in the 1930s, or at least that's the most famous example of that. 
So in that case, <clears throat> we still have to think about why the stock market has fallen uh, so dramatically and, have, and also the other effects in bond markets and property markets and so on that you've talked about. And I guess the answer to that is because this is caused by an, a viral pandemic, which, as you say, started very small, a tiny little outbreak, uh, what, three months ago in January in China. Um, the reason it's, it's produced such a dramatic effect in the stock market is that it's to, a, I suppose it's taken time for people to get used to the idea that this is going to spread right across the world and people are frightened by it. So there's an element of an emotional response to it. But also, I think, because uh, it's not possible yet, or it's only, it's only becoming possible now to try and sort of model, to try and predict what impact that's going to have on the uh, global economy in the shorter term. And we do know that stock markets are rather short-term uh, focused at times. And this is one of them, would you not agree? This is completely true. It is, this is one of the moments when stock markets are focusing on what's going to happen today, tomorrow, uh, and this week. And you can see it, evidence there, thereof, lies in the behavior of investments at the end of this first quarter, indeed, the end of any quarter. They want to position themselves such that they can justify uh, why their uh, portfolios look as they look. And so in a, in, a, in a, call it a bear market or in a down market, they want to be seen to be rather out of the market than in a market. And during bull markets, it's the other way around. You find that at the end of the quarters, share prices often lurch up, only then maybe to take a breather in the few days of the next quarter. So I think that that is important. But there's another thing I want to mention. I don't know if uh, you, Jonathan, like... Did you ever watch, uh, I'm sure you did, the Pink Panther movies? Indeed, yes. Yes. Well, the Pink Panther movies were directed by a man called Blake Edwards. And he believed in what he called the triple gag. So there's the first gag, which is swiftly followed by a second gag, which is then swiftly followed by a third gag. So this, what happened in the last few weeks, reminded me in a very sort of morbid fashion of a Blake Edwards movie with essentially three black swans, not just one. The, the first black swan was the sudden appearance of the coronavirus. The second black swan, which came a few days later, was the unexpected oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which had a very detrimental effect, as you saw. And then, just as we were thinking, we've seen enough, there was a third black swan, which came from the most unexpected quarter, which was the statement made by Christine Lagarde, the U European Central Bank chief, the new one, when she was asked a question, and she said it is not the role of the European Central Bank to manage the spreads of sovereign bond markets. And that, of course, was the worst possible thing to have said. It was a, quite a remarkable thing to come from the head of the ECB and was followed immediately on the same day by the Spanish market collapsing, stock market collapsing by 14% and the Italian market by 17% in one day. Right. So, so the, she, yeah. she is the Inspector Clouseau in this, in that case. She, she's, she's the one. <laughs> <laughs> she, she well, is, the Inspectrice, Inspectrice Clouseau, I suppose you'd call her, would you? I don't know. Well, yes. She's got a nickname out there. That nickname is Christine Lagasse. 
Lagaffe. All right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we're very generous people. We'll just uh, say that um, she is quite new to that job, and indeed, some people think she's not particularly well qualified for that job. But let's let's not say let's not go there. Let's just say that it was a miss. She misspoke, and she has since tried to uh, correct herself. I think, but uh, as you say, the damage was done uh, early on. Do you think, though, to what extent has the way that policymakers in both governments and central bankers have responded to this crisis? Do you think it's been appropriate, uh, and do you think it's been effective? And if not, what could they have done that they have not done so far? That's a very loaded and a very good uh, subject for discussion, Jonathan. Um, it's the usual. The central banks were much quicker, uh, much directer, and much more efficient. And they rolled out all the cannons, all the bazookas, both barrels, instantly. The politicians, on the other hand, were much slower. They were bickering among, amongst themselves. There was partisanship. And what they've done is maybe not necessarily too little, but it will take much longer to implement than what the European central banks have done. And I think that the discussion at the central bank level is relatively straightforward. When you're in front of a deflationary bust, which we are, then you've got to print money as if it's going out of fashion. This is what happened at the last deflationary bust that was slightly before our time, in the late 1920s and 1930s, there was a deflationary bust, and the Americans were begging the American consumer uh, to go out and consume. And that is the sort of thing that the central banks can and should be doing. They just print money. That is what they can do and what they should do. The governments, on the other hand, the way that they are planning to do this is inexorably going to lead to much higher government debt levels very quickly. The rule books will be more or less torn up. For example, in Europe, the Stability and Growth Pact is going to be ignored. Budget deficits are going to shoot up. And the result of that is that it will be payback time. And who is going to be the victim? Clearly, Jonathan, you and me, as taxpayers. Tax rates are going to go up, and governments will say, uh, it's your turn to bear the burden. As, of course, and this is another very important effect, once they've moved in, and once they've decided to nationalize bit by bit various parts of industry, they don't move out again. They're there to stay. And they're there to stay for a good 10 years. And then you have politicians running business. And that's a very dangerous combination. Right. Well, we're still quite early into that process. You're quite right. I, I agree totally with your analysis about how governments react. I mean, it's not... I, I would defend politicians to this extent that they, you know, in a democracy, they, they do tend to move quite slowly and they're particularly wary of doing things which are going to make people's lives difficult. But at the end of the day, they tend to do the thing that is going to be easier to pay for in the future than it is to pay for today. Uh, and so they, you know, the people, a lot of people don't realize, I suspect, that some of the things you're talking about are coming down the line. Uh, and of course, that's probably a good thing they don't know it's coming down the line. Uh, lots of aspects to this, which are, I think are interesting. You know, the intergenerational issues are going to be uh, quite profound, I think, because, as you say, who's going to pay for this in the end? Well, it's going to be taxpayers today 
but also taxpayers in the future in some form or another, whether through inflation or through higher tax rates. So yes, there's a lot to worry about. Um, but do you think that the actions that governments have taken <clears throat> will have an impact on the way that financial markets are valued? In other words, if they're going to do damage, should that not be priced into how uh, stock markets and bond markets are priced? You, that is very important what you've just said. It depends on whether you have your degree of, tr how should I say, tr trust in the politicians or whether you have my degree of distrust in the politicians. Uh, and I think that what needs to be done here is for the governments largely to stay out of this and to let the central banks deal with it through, for example, a helicopter drop, yes. which the Americans have started to do. Uh, because a helicopter drop puts money into your pocket straight away. Now, I know you're going to say you can't use it because you're confined. I agree with that. But one day you will be able to use it. And it bypasses the world of politics. And because the central bank can create money out of nothing and put it straight onto your bank account, it doesn't come with any strings attached. And the sort of strings attached I'm talking about, which you alluded to, is very visible in what the governments are trying to force the banks to do, especially in the UK, with regard to dividends. And they are prohibiting or trying to strong-arm banks into withholding or suspending their dividends on the basis that they have taken bailout loans from the government and therefore they can't dish out dividends to the, to the shareholders. Now, my reaction to that is it shouldn't be a loan. Uh, rather, sorry, if it were a grant, if the government were giving a grant to the recipients, then it could come with strings attached and with conditions. But they won't be grants, they'll be loans, and cheap loans at that. But loans are cheap anyway. So I believe that uh, the risk, of course, and you've seen what happened to bank shares in the UK in the last few days, it's been atrocious. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Yes. And, if, and, and I like to ask the governments, how do they deal with the fact that pension funds and life insurance portfolios who urgently need a yield are now deprived of that yield? Yes, well, it's a very good question. I think we'll have to come back to that next week. Uh, yeah. Peter, because to delve further into that, because I think you're absolutely right. The whole question of how this particular crisis uh, affects uh, investors who are reliant on income, whether that's pension funds, insurance companies, or indeed individuals, is a very live one. And I think, uh, well, what we do know from, from previous crises, I think, is that, um, you know, rather like what, what has been said about uh, marriage, and of course isn't true in our case, but, you know, repenting at leisure, shall we say, uh, is what governments are going to have to do and what their voters are going to do. It's not easy for them necessarily. And if we have, shall we say, one or two individuals at the head of governments who aren't perhaps totally to be trusted with their grasp of, the, uh, of economics, uh, we have to be concerned about that, I think. Mentioning no names, of course. Of course. Uh, so, but just as we come to a close today, Peter, let me just finish by asking you whether you think well, I'm going to put you on the spot because I have, I'm the first one to, put, to, to try this. How do you think, obviously we don't know how things are going to play out over the, over the next nine months. We don't know what the first, we know some of the first order effects. We don't know the second order effects yet or the third order effects. But how do you think 
I want you to give me a hunch. How do you think, when we look back at this year, at the end of this year, how do you think uh, things might have panned out? I mean, I'm not going to hold you to this. It's just a nice sort of intelligent speculation, shall we say. Yes. You are putting me on the spot, but that's fine. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> There'll be an occasion when I can put you on the spot, maybe next time. Oh, I uh, don't think so, no. <laughs> uh, but to conclude, of course, it depends on how this pandemic will develop. It depends on how soon people can go back onto the road. It depends how soon the consumer can consume, the investor can invest, and the, the dreadful drop in economic activity can be reversed. If it lasts for the rest of this year, then of course, I'm afraid that stock markets are going to have to reflect that. Because otherwise, if share prices don't go down when earnings collapse, it means that PE ratios go up. And that wouldn't make so much sense and is unlikely to happen. Therefore, uh, however, if it's soon, if it's in the next few weeks, then I can well see that the gap, in other words, uh, what you call the bear market, what I call the collapse, can be put right again um, by the end of this year. Well, we're going to, we're going to have a chance to, um, to monitor how things go as we continue these conversations. So I think that's it for this week. But uh, thank you, Peter, for your observations. And uh, we look forward to um, the next one where we will be uh, both older and hopefully wiser. But neither John... of be, only the first can be guaranteed. Indeed. Jonathan, thank you for all your observations. A very enjoyable conversation. See you next week. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice. Thank you.